Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. My brand new book, Midwife Pip's Guide to a Positive Birth, is now available. So much more than a book, this is a guide that allows me to hold your hand through your birth preparation journey. With over a decade of experience and knowledge packed in, to ensure you really are empowered in the way you deserve to achieve a positive birth, regardless of the twists and turns that crop up. Make sure that you get your hands on Midwife Pip's Guide to a Positive Birth Book now and are empowered to have the birth experience that you deserve. I'm Pip and welcome to the Midwife Pip podcast, the home of expert information and real chats on all things pregnancy, birth and beyond. The government recently found that four in five parents are unaware that their child's brain is 90% grown by the age of five, shedding light on a critical gap in parents' understanding of the impact they can have during these crucial early years. Whilst most of us recognise the importance of reading stories before bedtime or role-playing real-life scenarios with toys, despite not always having the time to do so, a new campaign called Little Moments Together aims to shine a light on the smaller, everyday moments that we often overlook, which positively benefit brain development too. I'm excited to be joined by this week's guest, child psychologist, Professor Sam Wass, who appeared in the multi-award-winning Channel 4 series, The Secret Life of Four, Five and Six-Year-Olds. He will share his expertise in this area, and I am all ears for how we can better support our children to thrive. So welcome, Sam, and thank you so much for joining me today. Great. Thanks for having me, Pip. I want to dive straight in because I have so many questions as a parent in this critical time myself Mm -hmm. that I want to throw at you. And Mm -hmm. so I wondered if you could kick us off with telling us a little bit more about your role and your expertise in the child brain development field, because it's fascinating to me. Oh, good. Yeah, no, it's a really um, kind of interesting area. And one, I think as we're going to be talking about a lot, but where you know, our understanding is changing very, very rapidly. So uh, we've really only had the ability to um, image a kind of a a live child's brain for the past, you know, 10, 20 years. Um, um, And as I say, kind of our our, our knowledge of, you know, both how children's brains develop and also how the types of interactions that are most beneficial for children's development really has changed a lot during that period. Um, So I'm a practicing kind of developmental neuroscientist. So I, I run a lab. Uh, funded by uh, the European Research Council and by the UK taxpayer. Uh, We're based um, at the University of East London. um, And we really focus on a kind of early development in the naught to kind of four or five years age range. Um, And the main thing that we do differently, Pip, compared to other labs is um, kind of the first kind of 10, 15 years of our understanding of early brain development has come very much from kind of imaging children's brains while they're on their own, presenting information um, on a computer screen, um, uh, or kind of auditory 
and, and we're looking at how their brain processes that information. And what we're doing um, kind of differently in my group is, you know, we're starting from the idea that well, that's all very good, but in fact, the vast, vast majority of early learning, particularly during the early years, we really spend almost all of our early waking hours um, in the company of an adult caregiver. Um, and, and there's a lot of behavioral evidence that um, the way that we interact uh, between a child and a parent is really, really foundational for almost all aspects of you know, how we learn to regulate our emotions and how we learn to kind of perceive and act and, and, and communicate. Um, but we really at the moment don't have any understanding at all of how these kind of interactions between two interacting brains, how they drive brain development. So that's what we're doing. Um, so we've got um, a, a, a kind of a, a funding, uh, mainly a five-year grant uh, from the European Research Council, uh, where we're observing kind of mums and babies um, and recording both of their brain activities at once while they're engaged in a live face-to-face -face interaction. Um, and we do this longitudinally. So we do this at five months, at 10 months, 15 months, um, and then 36 months to look at how those interactions um, develop and how they change over time. And, and how kind of information is shared between a mum and a baby's brain. And again, you know, how that changes over time. Um, so that's kind of basically what we do in a nutshell. I love it. It's so fascinating, isn't it? Because I think it's really easy when you've got that, that non-verbal kind of time mm -hmm. in their lives to assume that not much is really happening until they're mm. at school age or, you know, they can actually talk to you and things like that. But it's mm. really powerful to actually understand what's happening kind of almost behind the scenes that we're, we're not yeah. really recognizing in that time which i love yeah and just just on that but just because there's one thing that i think is really important there in particular which is you know one of the big things that we do is how children experience the world differently to how we experience it so mm -hmm. one of the things i'm keen to be talking about a lot is this idea of kind of children's brains are much messier and inefficient and they get overwhelmed by too much going on uh, so we can really measure you know we can measure kind of track kind of um, you know speech patterns then we can track their brains as they're listening to these speech patterns and we can see okay I'm managing to track their speech patterns up to a certain level but then when it gets too fast or too complex or too unpredictable we can see that the baby's brain kind of loses that ability to track what's happening and that's the type of thing that unless you're actually measuring a baby's brain as they're perceiving this information you can't tell so we don't know uh, you know what children can process and what they can't process so that's why kind of I think this type of research is really really important it helps us to gain a perspective on you know how children experience the world from their point of view you know what they can process and what's too, just too difficult or too complex for them to process at that stage of their development yeah which for adults is so powerful because we're so far removed from that time in our mm -hmm. lives you know, we literally have no recollection or, or memory of it so mm. so we need this science to help inform mm. us which i love can yeah. you explain to us a little bit sam about why this first five years is so crucial because i think for lots of parents listening when we think about development and learning we really do associate that with the school years don't we less so this first five so mm. why is it so critical yeah, so that's absolutely right, Pip. So, you know, a lot of people kind of think of this, you know, you do your learning, you start with your three R's, you're kind of reading, writing and arithmetic, and nothing really happens that important um, before then. Uh, but in fact, um, uh, you know, as I say, it's very recent that we've been really kind of 
realizing just how much brain development is happening during these first few years. You know, since we've had a chance to look inside a child's brain, you know, we can now look inside an awake child's brain at those different stages of their development and we can measure what's changing. And, and we know this fact that we started with that, you know, 90% of the growth of the actual kind of tissue matter in the brain has happened by the age of five. Um, and another thing that we're going to be talking a lot about is um, this idea that we have, uh, so we have kind of individual cells in our brains are called neurons um, and they branch um, and they connect. So an average neuron has around about a thousand connections to other neurons in our brain. So uh, we have something like uh, 10 to the power of 12 um, uh, neurons in the brain and about 10 to the power of 15 kind of synapses. So that's 10 with 15 zeros after it. So we really have a lot. Um, and one thing that we know happens um, during the early stages of development is we go through, through the first year of life, uh, you go through a massive growth in the number of brain connections that you have. So the number of synapses so the connections between neurons um, and the number of brain connections that you have actually peaks um, somewhere during early childhood. So somewhere, you know, it depends where in the brain, but somewhere between roughly the ages of two and four is when we have the largest number of brain connections at any stage in our life. Um, and then after that, it gradually tails off. Uh, so we have this kind of stage which, you know, coincides with things like early language learning, which is something we're going to be talking a lot about, which in a lot of ways and, you know, a lot of um, kind of awareness is coming about this. You know, the hardest forms of learning um, are the stuff that we do before we start school. It's things like learning language from a standing start, from an idea of not having a clue what any words mean. You know, we don't leave gaps between our words when we talk. If you look at the acoustic pattern of speech, it's just a continuous broken pattern. So how does a baby even start to work out, you know, where one word starts and the other word stops, let alone to work out, you know, what individual words mean, you know, from a perspective, given that, you know, so many words, you don't actually see them happening, you know, that type of thing. So there are so many really, really difficult learning challenges that happen during this early stage when, as I say, we have our kind of maximum number of brain connections. Uh, so that's what we're kind of really trying to raise awareness of with this campaign, I think. That's such a great perspective. I hadn't recognised, like you say, how a sentence to us, you know, you talk, and mm -hmm. I know that that's, you know, 12 different words, but for a baby, that's just one big sentence, you know, is there's mm. no separation, which is so interesting, isn't it? I, we just yeah. don't, we just don't realise that, I don't think, as adult parents, because we're so yeah. accustomed to the, to our norms, essentially. Yeah, and it's it, it often, yeah, no, it is interesting, and often, um, you know, one fact that I think we're, we're increasingly aware of now is if we were born with our adult-like brains, we would never get over that initial hump of trying to spot a pattern where we don't know anything. You know, so, you know, adults are much slower at learning second languages anyway than children. But the, the difference between second language learning, where you're mapping one set of words that you've already learned onto another, compared to first language learning, where you're just trying to spot a pattern amongst this massive chaos of noise. You know, so if we were born with adult-like brains, we would never get over that initial hump. So, you know, we really need to be in awe of what babies' brains are doing, um, kind of make learning to make sense of what they see and hear for the first time, because, you know, they can do it. And, you know, as I say, if we were born like, with adult-like brains, we'd, we would never manage to get over that hump. That's amazing, isn't it? When we kind of think that babies and children aren't very clever because they can't mm -hmm. talk or communicate, but actually, my goodness, there's so much going on. And I guess what's mm -hmm. so incredible about, especially that real, you know, baby first year or two of their life is they're also learning all these physical aspects, aren't they? About mm -hmm. self and body and learning to walk and they've got fingers that they can move and control mm -hmm. objects with. So there's such mm -hmm. a 
massive amount of development that they're undergoing. So mm. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, because other people listening must be wondering this now as well, how do baby and children's brains actually develop? Is it that connection of neurons or what's going on? important here is you know as i say Pip, that we start off from this phase where we have kind of a very kind of noisy and overconnected brain so we have loads and loads of connections um uh you know everything is basically connected up to everything else you know to, to a much larger degree in a in a baby's brain compared to an adult's brain um and also what and, and basically what happens during development is you know, you have lots and lots of different kind of brain ape regions that try to perform a given task, yeah? And basically the way that we learn is uh, the brain region that kind of wins at performing that task each time we do it, sends signals to the other brain region saying, it's okay, guys, we got this, you know, we're, we're in charge, yeah? Uh, we've managed to do this, you don't need to have a go, basically. And then over time, what happens is we get this process that we call kind of uh, localization and specialization. So different brain functions get localized and specialized to different areas of the brain, yeah? Um, and basically everything starts out as a big competition, you know, all of our different air brain, brain regions, you know, try to do kind of all these different tasks. Um, and then over time, the one that wins, you know, strengthens the connections and it weakens the other connections. And then over time, you get this kind of increased specialization over time. So, so that basically is what um, uh, it, uh, we get, you know, is the reason why children are much, much, much slower uh, than um, adult brains are at doing a task. You know, it's also the reason why ch young children's brains are much more unreliable. You know, so I noticed this with my four year old, uh, you know, he'll be able to do something. He'll have done it, you know, 15 times in a row and then suddenly he won't be able to do it anymore. Um, and then it will come back to him. And it's because, you know, his brain is messy. Uh, so, you know, most of the time he does it, you know, the, the particular brain regions that are kind of gradually winning uh, for that task and uh, are kind of are doing it. But then sometimes the signaling will go wrong. You know, the wiring diagram won't be quite working quite right that time. Um, and then it will go into a different part of the brain. And that's why, you know, children are so much more unreliable and unpredictable in terms of kind of how they interact. So, so that basically, Pip, is um, kind of the principle of how kind of brain learning happens. You know, we basically get, you know, progressively more kind of specialized. We get these kind of crack kind of new uh, uh, kind of networks. We call them neural networks uh, that are specialized to performing different tasks. But what, what that means is I think there's a few things that really concretely impacts um, on how, you know, we ought to be interacting with children, um, particularly during the early development. So the most important one, I think, is um, just keeping things simple and keeping things slow. So this again is you know, something that is very easy not to be aware just of how, how differently babies are experienced in the world. Um, so just to give you one example, um, we've done some, some colleagues of mine um, did some um, studies where they flashed up, looked at how fast um, adult brains can perceive. So we can basically see frames flickering up to 10 frames a second. So if something lasts for you know, 100 milliseconds, so 10 flickers a second is, is the fastest rate that we can see. Even in a 15 month old um, baby's brain, and the fastest rate that they can see is one flicker per second. Yeah. So wow. even in 15, even by 15 months, anything that comes and goes, yeah, that lasts less than a second, they just can't see. It's too fast for their brains to process. And then when you go even younger, it gets much, much slower, even slower than that. Yeah. So if you imagine even for a 15 month old, you know, dropping a ball, you know, I've done this with my own because I'm endlessly experimenting with them, <laughs> um, dropping a ball that lasts less than a second for it to fall. And they, they, they do have that expression, where did that go? Yeah, they can't see it when it's moving and it's only when it's there. 
Similarly, for smiles and social signals, you know, again, a lot of our adult social signaling happens very fast. You know, I'll often smile and it's been and gone in less than a second. And that's the other type of thing. They just can't see. Their brains can't keep up with that. So I think, you know, one of the you know, most foundational things, Pip, particularly for very young babies, although, as I say, you know, even 15-month-olds, but they're much, much, much slower than adults, is just being really, really slow and patient, yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and um, uh you know, leaving time for them to do things. So, you know, my two and a half year old at home is just learning to talk and um, the amount of time that you have to wait for her to produce a sentence sometimes. She'll go, but she's sitting there waiting for 30 seconds or so. And it really needs a lot of patience, but you know, it's because their brains are just working out how to build these firing patterns, as I say, that, you know, it's really, really important to be patient. I love that because it's definitely something we've noticed. We've got a, a two-year-old Sam who's again, he's been always been quite um, quick with developing language skills, but slower with some of those physical aspects, which I think is quite common, mm-hmm. isn't it? When they're developing, it's almost like their brains can't quite focus on two big tasks at once. So they tend mm-hmm. to, I guess, sway mm-hmm. more to the other. But yeah, mm-hmm. we're very much at the point now where he's where he's using more sentences and stringing mm-hmm. more words together. And it's really mm-hmm. tempting, isn't it, to finish that sentence for them, especially mm-hmm. when you know mm-hmm. what they're trying to tell you. Um, mm-hmm. And actually, especially in a busy world that we all live in and we're trying to you know, make dinner and they're trying to tell us what they want and it's mm-hmm. easy just to sort of step in. Mm-hmm. But like you say, taking that step back. And I think that's where understanding the why makes it easier. Mm-hmm. It's not that they can't get the words out, it's that their brain just needs longer to process, allows you mm-hmm. to be a little bit more understanding and patient, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I remember with, with, with my son, Freddie, there was one day when he spent the whole day on one sentence. Like I think I even remember it now because we went over it the whole day. We've just, we've run out of orange juice. We need to go to the shops to get some more. And he basically spent the whole day just with playing with each of the words in that sentence and just really, really slowly getting his brain firing into the shape to process that sentence and it was an incredibly slow process but you know really really interesting to watch and um that type of thing i think it's really important but there's one other thing as well Pip, that i wanted to uh, kind of feed on from that which which is close to what we were talking about which is this idea of repetition so that's another thing we're really keen to uh, raise awareness of with this campaign um that children um, um of all ages uh, will kind of when they're during early development will seek out repetition you know what exactly they're repeating varies a lot depending on their stage of brain development you know with a young child it's with a young baby it's you know often kind of bashing a spoon on the table or something like that that they do again and again you know with older children it can be you know those why conversations you know with my two and a half year old it's you know we've got to get dressed why because we've got to get to nursery why you know exactly those types of conversations <laughs> that you have again and again you know with my four-year-old and um, he, 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 we, we, we went for a faith when he was younger. You know, there are some books that he wanted to read, you know, literally hundreds of times that we just go through the same book again and again. Now he's on to watching, you know, Octonauts. And there are some episodes that he will choose to watch again and again and again. And, and the, the re- I think it's really important to raise awareness of there's a reason why children seek out this repetition. And it's exactly what we've been talking about. Their brains are messy, they're noisy, they're overconnected, um, and, and just doing the same thing again and again and again um, helps them to build these strong and stable patterns. Yeah, It helps their brain to work out you know, how to process the information as it's coming in. 
you know, and the types of things they like to repeat obviously get more complex as they get older. So, so a young baby, when they're bashing a spoon on their table, what they're doing is they're helping to build connections between you know, the motor part of the brain, the brain that controls their movements with the hearing part of the brain, the part that controls the hearing. So, so, and they love that because it's just a really, really simple, encouraging two parts of the brain to link up. So they'll spontaneously just do this thing kind of again and again and again. And with a, you know, a 12 month old or a 50 month old who, who wants to read the same simple story again and again and again, it's learning how to pair, you know, the pictures that they're seeing with the sounds of the words that they're hearing. Yeah. And again, it's helping these different parts of the brain to talk to each other, you know, the visual part of the brain and the auditory part of the brain. Um, and, and but the, the more that they do it, uh, the, the, the more these strong and stable kind of connections between brain works um, kind of um, uh, kind of start get established. Um, and the reason I think it's really important to be aware of that is because, again, goes back to how different children's brains are. You know, naturally, as an adult, my inclination is. I learn more from doing different things. Yeah. Yes. So why would I want to watch the same TV show, you know, mm. more than once? Because I already know what's happened. Yeah. And in fact, when, when we started, my, my son uh, first let him on BBC iPlayer, we tended to pick uh, what we chose. Um, and we tended to always pick something different, just because that's the way that we process it as an adult. And it's only since we started letting him choose what he watches that we noticed that, in fact, what he needs is the repetition. So it's a very, very different thing. So a lot of parents, you know, very naturally, just as I've been doing, kind of tend to impose our adult-like way of learning and, and not kind of um, uh, kind of be aware just how differently children need to learn. And, and repetition is a great example of that. That makes total sense. And actually what you were saying there really resonated me with children's feeding journeys because we're so used to when it comes to you know weaning or feeding our children they need this massive variety to be healthy and and so we end up kind of like you say adding that into other aspects a variety of toys a variety of play mm. um, but like you say this is this is really different and the other thing mm. that i feel like is we talk a lot about intuitive eating for children mm -hmm. but it sounds like we can allow them to be quite intuitive in their learning styles allowing yeah. that repetition to be something we support if that's what they're obviously craving actually perhaps mm. they can they can lead us a little bit more with with allowing us mm. to support their development as parents yeah definitely and and, and again that's really something i think is important because um it, it's something that can is very counterintuitive you know to me as a parent and to a lot of parents this idea that you know, your child is in charge of is the best judge of what they can learn from but you're absolutely right Pip, in terms of feeding so you know i think about that a lot um in my family that, that, that they like to eat the same thing again and again and again. And they like to be able to predict what the food is going to taste like um, uh, before it goes into their mouth. So I had this weird experience recently where I was cooking rice salad uh, with my two-year-old and four-year-old. They're both, we do lots of joint cooking in, the, in, the, in, the, um, in my family. Um, uh, I put them up on a counter and they were kind of helping me to chop with a kind of little table knife and stuff. Um, and it was really funny because they're making rice salad um, and they would happily eat each one of the ingredients as it went in. Um, to that they were kind of sitting kind of eating the dried apricots and eating the nuts and that type of thing as we were putting into the thing and then they wouldn't actually touch the rice salad when it was finished even though it was a combination of stuff that I knew that they liked everything that was in there and and this came back to this idea that for them it's about eating just like everything is about predictability yeah mm -hmm. so they learn if they can predict what so they like it if they can predict what it's going to taste like before they go into their mouth 
And the reason that they don't like rice salad is every mouth will taste a little bit different. So it's unpredictable. Whereas they're much happier eating, you know, a bowl of dried apricots because every one, when it goes into their mouth, it goes in the same way. So, you know, I, I've been thinking about that a lot with my family. And, you know, it's annoying because I love to cook and I love to try out different recipes. But now we're into, you know, just cooking the same recipe again and again. And through because, you know, I'm thinking lots about how this repetition helps their early learning. I know eating kind of roast carrots, you know, again and again and again, helps their brain kind of the networks associated with processing the taste of roast carrots to develop. That's, I just love it. It's so fascinating. I feel like it gives us a lot of power and confidence as parents as well. And we've got a little bit more of this kind of underpinning knowledge. So we've mentioned Mm -hmm. slowing things down and that patience Mm -hmm. element, which, yeah, guilty, I definitely need to work on as a parent. Um, Mm -hmm. And also that, (laughs) we're only human, aren't we? That power of repetition. Is there anything else that parents can actively do to support their child's uh, brain development, Sam, in these first five years? Yeah, so there's another thing that, which, um, again, is um, something where there really is quite a lot of evidence now about this idea of kind of child-led uh, learning. So um, one of the things that there's loads of evidence coming from different sources, which is kind of parents who are more um, kind of responsive to what their child is doing, they tend to have um, uh, children um, who kind of learn better, whether it's in the case of kind of learning to speak or learning to regulate their emotions, compared to parents who kind of drive and lead the interaction more. Um, and we're in my in my lab um, doing a kind of lots of work uh, at the moment trying to understand why this is. Yeah, um, we think um, and various other people. There's a group in Denmark who've been doing some good work on it. We think that what happens is after um, so a lot of kind of initiations happen quite at random um, in a, in a baby. So we're trying to kind of predict when, what they're going to do next based on their brain activity. And often you know um, uh, kind of things seem to be happening quite at random, but they're very sensitive. Uh, and, and we've shown this and other people have shown this too, to when I do something and that gets a response. Yeah. Um, and it looks like they kind of have a window of increased kind of brain sensitivity uh, to when they do something and then they receive some information straight after that. Yeah. Um, so kind of one of the studies, for example, that we've shown to look at this is um, we're comparing. We just got um, uh, children and parents to inter- interact across a table uh, while we're measuring brain activity in the mum and the baby at the same time. Um, and we just put some toys, we put a couple of toys down on the table um, and uh, we give the mum some kind of new word labels for that for that, for that that object. Uh, and we look at how the brain, how the baby's brain is processing those word labels. And then we test afterwards, you know, has the baby learned those word labels through the interaction? Yeah. And we're comparing um, uh, mums who have a tendency to, you know, pick, pick things up and say, look at this, it's a zert. Look at this, it's a zert to mums who wait until their child naturally looks at it and picks it up and says, oh yeah, that's a zerk, like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can measurably show that, you know, if you wait until your child has looked at something, yeah, and then you present the word label for it, uh, but the impact of that word label on their brain activity is bigger and that they learn it later on. So, so that's come across quite, quite strongly. Um, again, it's something that I, I try and do with my kids and it's really, really hard, you know, so I, I'm doing Duplo with my two-year-old and um, I, I find it really, really hard not to get into the point where, you know, I'm building the Duplo just because my brain is so much faster and more efficient and, you know, I, I could yeah. just do it. 
and and I'm building the Duke and I'm saying kind of come along kind of watch me you know I'm leading the interaction you know you'll learn just from watching me yeah and um, whereas to do it you know the way that we think that we should do it which is you know you wait you know they're looking around really really slowly and then their gaze will land on a particular object yeah and then you watch where they're looking and you pick it up what they're looking at anyway what they're interested in anyway um, and then you say, oh, look, you know, this is a piece. What are we going to do with it? Yeah. And then you let them lead it um, and you support them in doing kind of what they're trying to do. Yeah. And um, it requires so much patience and so much willpower as a parent. And, you know, I, I really, really struggle, particularly on Duplo, um, where, you know, I always have my own idea about what I want to be building. Um, but it's exactly the opposite of, you know, what we used to think about learning, which is, you know, I'm the clever adult you know, I'm just going to teach you and you've just got to follow and try and keep up with me. You know, it's exactly the same shift that's happened in, you know, later education. Again, very, very evidence-based. You know, I'm I'm 44 and I learned at school from a teacher kind of writing a long passage out on the blackboard and we had to copy it out into our, uh, into our, um, our books. Now we know that, you know, learning works much better when it's interactive, when the child asks a question and then you're answering the question. It's just a more effective way of learning. And it's exactly the same for early learning. Uh, you know, wait follow and support and, and try not to lead. Mm, I love that. But yeah, I can totally understand how the level of patience required. Mm -hmm. But then I suppose that's where being realistic and thinking, when can I dedicate that time to learning in that mm -hmm. style? So it may be that every single task of the day, we think realistically, actually, we're not going to be able to achieve that. But actually, mm -hmm. let's dedicate this particular time to allow yeah. that. And just having that a, bit, a little bit more self-awareness, I suppose, about mm -hmm. when when we're doing things, how we're doing things, how we can bring little elements of that into, mm -hmm. into our playtime. Yeah, definitely. And I think for me, um, practically, you know, I, it just it really does my head in. Um, you know, just being completely child-led all the way through. So we find compromises. So, you know, cooking is one example where. You know, we'll be doing something like making a rice salad together and it's got enough of a structure that I can feel like I'm not going mad just you know, waiting for my child to do something but yet they have enough freedom uh, that they feel like kind of they can explore and I can respond to them so you know for me that's a compromise in our family between you know me needing to have an idea of you know where we're going it has to have a beginning middle and end otherwise I just can't cope and um, with them feeling that you know they they, they they want to explore and and me kind of needing to kind of respond to them mm -hmm. so yeah different different kind of families have different kind of solutions and yeah you definitely can't do it all the time and it's really hard not to beat yourself up but that's what I always end up doing thinking you know no you're doing it all wrong Sarah. I know we're at the stage now where my son wants to get himself dressed in the morning, which was really uh -huh. easy over Christmas because he essentially just wore some form of Christmas pajama day and night. Uh -huh. You know, that's all he wanted to wear was something with Santa or an elf on. So it was quite a quick process. It w looked slightly hideous everywhere we went, but he was happy and it was it was fairly quick. Now that the Santa pajamas are in the attic, the whole process takes forever. And uh -huh. I'm really trying to do that patient thing of Yes, we can try on six pairs of trousers before we actually commit to leaving your bedroom. Um, but it is really hard. It is hard. But I think, yeah, finding that finding that balance and being kind to yourself, because otherwise it becomes a bit too much of an overwhelming pressure, mm -hmm. doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I, we've still got the sense of pajamas going in my family, though. I love them. <laughs> I think they're really sad. It's just like Christmas music. I don't think it should be confined just to Christmas. <laughs> yeah, true. It is. it is magical. It is magical. So we've talked about some of those practical things that parents can be more aware of and to actively do. Are there mm. any things that parents should really try and avoid doing when it comes to their child's development, Sam? Yeah, I think, 
Um, uh, you know, we've we've talked about this idea of kind of leading the interaction, um, and we've talked about this idea of kind of overstimulating. So, you know, taking things too fast and not realizing, you know, just the in fact, the slower that you can take the learning, you know, that the more that they're going to um, go through, kind of go for it. Um, I think kind of another thing that kind of builds on this idea is um, this idea of kind of thinking about a very stripped down environment. So, you know, this is something that, um, again, we're kind of trying to raise awareness of uh, kind of the, the benefits to children of kind of being in a home setting and, and things having really, really being really, really quiet. Yeah. So, you know, for example, um, with uh, kind of language learning, um, one of the other areas that is really, really important that we haven't talked about is this ability to kind of tease apart and kind of pull apart kind of a messy environment. So um, we, you know, my four-year-old just starting school and um, he's spending all of his time in an environment where um, kind of there are lots and lots of people talking at once. Yeah. So ooh, kind of a reception classroom, kind of choosing time, you know, lots and lots of different conversations going on at once. Um, and, you know, school hall, you know, so many different kind of conversations going. And basically what's happening when, when those, um, what's happening kind of in his brain um, as he's kind of trying to process that type of setting is all of these different speech streams um, and other sources of noise, table scraping on the floor, uh, that type of thing, are all bouncing off the walls. Um, and then they basically bounce. And then when they reach his ear, all of those different complex intermingled sound sources just make kind of one tiny little flap um, his, in his eardrum vibrate. So you have this kind of really, really complex pressure wave of all of these different sources of sound, you know, just making one surface vibrate and, and all intermingled. And um, our adult brains are incredibly practiced at what, what is, again, an incredibly complicated job of teasing apart the, these intermingled pressure waves to find out the different individual sources that these different sounds are coming from. Yeah. And if I'm in a situation where you know I'm trying to pay attention to one person, you know, like the teacher who's reading, um, or talking to a class at the same time when there's lots of other noise going on, then what I'm doing is I'm, I'm teasing apart all these different um, uh, kind of sources that are making my eardrums vibrate to pick about one source. And then I'm selectively amplifying that source to make sure that I pay more attention to that. And I'm dampening down all these other sources of noise that I'm trying to uh, kind of uh, ignore. And um, as I say, an incredibly hard job. But we, our adult brains are so practiced at doing it that we're really, really hardly aware that, that it's a hard job for our brains to be doing at all. Yeah? And another thing that really has, we've really kind of gained a lot of awareness of over the past few years is children's brains find that much, much, much harder to do uh, than adult brains do. Yeah? And we know that quite simply because you know, if we, we do experiments where we play two people talking at once, uh, one in one ear, one in the other ear, um, and we ask an adult to pay attention to your right ear, yeah? And we can measure the adult's brain activity and we can see that the adult brain activity, that the rhythms in the adult's brain start to track the rhythms in the speech stream that they're paying attention to, yeah? And then we ask them to switch to pay attention to the left ear and we can see the adult brain rhythms and switching so they start to track the speech rhythms in the, in the left ear. And we do exactly the same as study with older children um, and, we, and we see that, that their brain activity is more influenced by the speech stream that they're trying to ignore yeah even in you know eight to 12 year olds they're still more influenced by by that so so that from that we can tell that babies and young children find it harder to do this process of 
you know, filtering out background noise um, and selectively tuning into one thing in a very complex environment. So um, one of the things that I think is, is something to be aware of, particularly when you've got a young child, is the simpler you can make the environment, the better that they learn from it. So, you know, for example, studies have shown that um, it, children um, who um, spend a lot of their early life in a, in a home where the telly's on in the background, or, or even, you know, there's music or radio always playing in the background, at the same time as their caregiver is talking to them, yeah, they actually learn language more slowly than children whose early experience is, you know, listening in silence and there's just one person talking, yeah? And that's simply because it's easier for their brain to work out, you know, okay, that's the speech if there's no background noise that it's occurring to. And, and it's the same with visual processing. So, so we haven't talked about this as much, but, um, um, but um, one of the big things that they're doing during early life is, you know, working out how to process visual information. And again, it's a really hard job if you think about it, Basically, lots of light sources are hitting this tiny little square at the back of our eyes called the retina, um, and lots and lots of different photons coming from lots of different sources are going onto there. And we tease apart these different sources to work out, you know, to construct a 3D space. Yeah. And um, the, the more of their visual experience is, you know, they're looking at your face directly head on. Yeah. Not too far away because they're very short sighted, as we know, but also they're not looking at your face at kind of an oblique angle or they're not in a situation where they can see some of your face but not all of it yeah? and also with the background the more of their early visual experience can be just your face close head-on simple looking at them against a white background yeah or something that's really really simple the easier that they'll find it to learn you know where the outlines of your face are where the key features of your face are and just to start to process kind of visual information so so those are two examples that, you know I could give examples of motor development of the same thing, you know, the idea of kind of keeping things simple, you know, really, really stripped down, pared down environments, the environments that they do the best learning in. And again, it's very, very counterintuitive, very, very hard to do. But, you know, I think there definitely is a really strong case coming from the neuroscience that it, it, it's a way to help early learning. And actually, hopefully quite reassuring for parents, because when you start listening to a topic like we're talking today, supporting your child's brain development, we may well quite easily fall into the trap of thinking there's lots of other things we need to be doing. We need to be doing more. Mm -hmm. We need to be adding this in. Yeah. But actually, what you're telling us is do less, slow yeah. it down, keep it more simple, look yeah. and be led by your child more. So actually, as a parent, it's kind of making the job easier in yeah, many aspects. Yeah, and definitely. And, and, and the other thing is, you know, just we were saying about children are very good at kind of working out what's good for their development. You know, when you've got a young baby at home, it often feels like with mine, it just feels like all we want to do is just to sit and stare into their eyes. Yeah? yeah. And it's really nice because this is exactly what they need. You know, just that really slow, just lying on you, just with your face just there. You don't need to be doing lots, as you say. You don't need to be thinking about stimulating them. Just simply staring at your face, you know, for long, long periods of time. You know, it's exactly what is best for their brain development at this really, really early stage. So, you know, we kind of have that instinct in us and it's exactly right, I think. Yeah. And one of the other things I think we're seeing talked about a little bit more, Sam, is around toys and amount of toys that children have. And that I've seen quite a lot recently and that actually less is often better than suddenly mm. access to, you know, a whole room packed full of stuff. Yeah, no, definitely. Which is often tough when you've got a new baby at home because everyone wants to give them toys. But that's exactly yeah. right. You know, they really, really only need one toy and it really doesn't need to be complicated mm. and, it, and it will positively help them 
to be learning to do things like reaching gestures and that type of thing, you know, as well as for their brains to be processing that toy. If it's just one thing that they're looking at again and again and again, you know, they need that repetition. They need that simplicity, um, uh, which is tough when you're worried about offending lovely aunts who've given you some lovely present because they're so excited about your young baby. But um, <laughs> but it's relaxing in a lot of ways, I know, but yeah definitely I think it it is definitely some key sort of principles that I've taken away from listening to you today in terms of taking that pressure off slowing things down and and having that ability to be repetitive is that that's the right way of saying it repetitive bit of a tongue teaser that one um I wonder Sam if you could just try and it's gonna be really hard to summarize this I think but if you could try and summarize your advice into three top tips for parents listening that are thinking about how they can support their little one's brains yeah, I guess I guess but the most important would be kind of baby brains are messy, overconnected. Three things arising from that. Take things slow and simple, let them lead, and be really, really patient with repetition. Yeah. I think those are kind of probably to condense it down, those are the three most important things. Yeah, absolutely. And they've that I think having that understanding from hearing you talk today is really helpful for actually recognizing why that's beneficial and why that's important. Mm-hmm. And then you can always remind yourself of that while you're practicing your ultimate parent patience. Um, Sam, if people want to get some more support or access more information on the topic mm-hmm. of brain development in under fives, where should they go? So there's loads and loads and loads of information, Pip, on the Start for Life website. So if you just Google Start for Life, it will come up as the first link. Um, And there's loads of basics on kind of brain development, but also kind of top tips for me and lots of other people as well on, you know, what what the science is suggesting, you know, the best ways to be interacting, ideas for activities, loads and loads of resources for first-time parents, all on the Start for Life website. Brilliant. Sam, thank you so much. It's been absolutely fascinating to talk today and to pick your brains on a really important topic that I'm excited about the future of. Great. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me, Pip. Now, if you have found this week's episode as fascinating and inspiring as I have, then I highly recommend keeping your eyes peeled for next week's chat with author, musician and mum, Izzy Judd who'll be sharing some of the practical ways that she has implemented child development tools into her family's day-to-day life. Before I head off, I need to tell you something. 68% of you who listen to my show have not hit the subscribe button. So can you do me a favor? And if you've ever enjoyed listening, hit subscribe now. It makes a huge difference, helping me to keep bringing you episodes and together, we can then reach and empower more women on this journey. If you are a pregnant or newly postpartum listener and are looking to have the healthiest, most positive and informed journey, then my exclusive Your Pregnancy and Your Postnatal Journey courses may be for you. I work with a select number of women in a bespoke way with unlimited access to me and my expert team for the most transformative level of support at this important time in your life. We only get one shot at getting this time right. So to get in touch and find out more, head to midwifepip.com.
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.